everyone. Welcome to Everyman BJJ, a weekly show covering MMA and BJJ news and training tips. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen and the audience. I have a very special guest today for Everyman BJJ. Um, few, I guess superlatives is in, are in order. First is our first guest on the show. But also I want to just uh, read off a couple of notes that I that I came across. Of course, we're speaking about the ADCC Submission Wrestling World Champion in the Absolute Division, fourth degree, fourth degree black belt under Leo Vera. Uh, and I have not seen this before, but I like it. America's Jiu-Jitsu superhero. Also, uh, the list goes on because this is a very well accomplished man. Uh, head of Zenith BJJ, uh, film producer, author, academic, and none other than uh, Robert Drysdale. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Good to see you guys again. Good to see you. Frank, welcome as always. Nice to see you. Um, you know, I, you've had this relationship with uh, Robert for a long time. Uh, why don't you uh, uh, fill in the details? Let us know how you met him. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I met Robert back in Las Vegas. It might have been 2009-ish, I think. Robert, you were at Extreme Couture doing some training over there, I think. And Robert, at the time, uh, was married to Michelle Nicolini, who, you know, in her own right, is a multiple-time world champion. I think Robert's a six-time world champion in jiu-jitsu, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Rob, six times? Well, if you count all my purple belts and brown belt yeah. titles and all the other world world championships then yes uh most yeah. people count the uh if you only count the ibjjf league black belt division i have one medal and two silvers and two bronzes in that tournament so right. yeah it just depends on what tournament you count as a world championship or not yeah so i was i was um training um, at another academy, I had a great experience there, and Michelle Nicolini came, was coming in and training, and she was really, really good, and um, Michelle and Robert were together, and so I remember one thing that really, it's amazing how little things can stand out and spark a relationship, so Robert was on the sidelines, like, you know, just watching students, not Robert's academy, he's just watching, humble as can be, you would not have known that he was anything special on the mat. And so he was sitting there. I had heard about him. I'd heard this guy's really good, but I hadn't seen a lot of tape of him. I'd heard he's really good. He didn't carry himself like he was anything special or majestic. He's sitting on the sidelines and I was doing a move. I think I was on the back. I was on the back of a training partner at the end of practice and I was practicing transitioning from the back to an arm bar. And I was messing that up. I was muffing it. And I, and I got the feeling that Robert is sitting there like he wasn't going to come over, but it was like, I was having trouble with it, and he was just being generous, like coming over, like, okay, this is this is how you transition to that armbar, and he did it. It was it was just it was butter, right? It was it was super slick, and and it was like wow, like that. This guy's like twice as big as me, and and nimble and slick, and you know, and that lot of little details. That that was my first impression of him. I didn't think at that time that I would go train with Robert, but my, it was my first impression, and from that moment on, I was like, wow. This guy's a smart dude. This guy really he he's he's got some next level stuff going on in the, in the head of this, right? Um, and so 
as it turned out, within a year, year and a half, wind up going over there. It might have been 2008 when, I, when, we, when, we, when we had that experience. But then I wind up going over there. And this is interesting, Rob. I never told you this. But when I first went to train with Rob at his academy, because Rob in the old days, when Rob opened his own academy, there were only like 12 or 15 of us like hardcore. Like there wasn't, the whole world wasn't coming. Like later, Rob, you had Britain coming and Australia and Korea and UFC fighters. And it was a who's who on those mats. But in the early going, in the first year when Robert opened up, it was like, you know, it, the, the, the regular people weren't coming. It was like the diehards. There was like 12 or 15 hardcore and the thing was, bro, everybody on those mats was really good. Like there wasn't any weak link. So like every role, it's when you get a bigger class, sometimes you can have easier roles, right? Because you have like different levels on the mat. Like those 12 to 15 <laughs> were just killers. They were 10 minute rounds. And I remember, and I'm not a guy that quits easy, but here I am. I'm like, I'm like 37, 38 years old, right? And I was just thinking in the first like six weeks, like, Bro, I might have made a mistake. Like these roles, these roles here are just like it's just like one really good guy, and usually heavier after another. And uh, and I remember driving home, just like trying to talk myself up, like, no, this is going to be so great for you. This is the this is going to take your game so much better. You need this day in day out. But I had to boost myself up, man, because there were days, Rob. I'd go home. I was like, damn, this is these are wars every day. So anyway. That's that's my thing, and and uh, I'm really happy. That, uh, a lot more to say about that, but I'm really happy we have Rob here. Rob and I, for people out there watching, we've done podcasts together, Dig Up Life Jitsu. We've done that. We've got an interview on YouTube. We hour and a half, two hours. Great stuff. Always a pleasure, Rob. Let's dive in. You got closed guard. Let's get this straight. Closed guard is basically, arguably, the best historical uh, book, and I think you did a documentary. You did both simultaneously. Is that correct? Um. Yes, documentary that turned into a book. Just just one thing. It's it's not the best history book out there. Okay. The best history book on the on the history of jiu-jitsu is the book called Shockey by Roberto Pedreira, volume one, two, and three. There's a prequel called Craze, volume one and two. Volume three is not out yet. That's the best book on the history of jiu-jitsu. The documentary was inspired by that book. The documentary uh, is a little late, but sometime during quarantine, you know, I was bored out of my mind, and I, I don't like to be uh, – I like to be productive all the time, right? So during quarantine, it was difficult to be productive. So um, the guy who wrote Shockey, uh, he suggested I write an article about my experience, my memories of making a documentary because he thought that was a cool story. I'm like, ah, that's not a bad idea. So I sat down during quarantine to write an article that I thought would be maybe two, 3,000 words. Next thing you know, I'm at 50,000 words, and I can keep going. And so I'm just going to put it all on paper. And I wrote the whole thing in two weeks, maybe three. And, um, and then, obviously, at some point, you know, we had the idea of uh, inserting the transcripts of the interviews that weren't going to make it to the documentary because I felt there was some valuable information there for the fans. And uh, I, we end up with like a 400 plus page book in my head when I started it, when it went from article to this is going to be a book, I was thinking like 80 to 120 pages. That was my thought process. You know, next thing you know, we're at just, just over 400 pages and um, I could have made it longer. I was, I was at some point I was like, you know what, like if people see a big book, they're going to get too intimidated. I started measuring like how long. How big is going to be a 400 book? Because I know how a generation is. They'll look at the size of the book 
And if it's too big, they're not even going to touch it. So there was there was that concern as well. But I had a lot of fun riding it. It was it was a really really fun experience. I had no idea I would enjoy riding as much as I did. Now it's interesting. You said, and I love the humility there. You said, "Hey, Frank, you corrected me, Frank. There actually is a there's better BJJ historical um, resources out there." What did? Why did you feel compelled then, Rob, to do it? What differentiates yours? What's the angle? If you feel like you, you didn't exceed or surpass them in terms of BJJ, best BJJ documentary of all time, what is, it, what is the new wrinkle that you bring to the table? And why did you feel compelled to do the, the book and the documentary? I, the thing is, and, and you know, when I say Shock is the best book on the history of jiu-jitsu out there, I mean that sincerely. Uh, uh, This is not, I am not a professional academic, but I understand it well enough to differentiate good from bad. I think that I I think I have an understanding of how, you know, a history book should be written because I'm so passionate about history and I've been reading about it my whole life. And I've developed a habit over the last 15 years to read bibliographies. I actually go through the sources, every book I read, like, where did this guy get this information from? And his, and not only that, not only is his research sound, but it's also his interpretation is very, very uh, in tune with how rigorously a book should be written in terms of academic rigor, skepticism, not jumping to conclusions, not being pro or anti. A historian may be pro United States, it might be anti United States, it might be pro Marxism, it might be anti Marxism. And you, you got to rid of all that. Like my view is you should be straight down the middle. And he has that sort of approach, I feel like. So I really like his interpretation. It's very straight down the middle, no BS. This is how it was. But on the other hand, the book is very hard to read for the average reader because it's a very heavy read. It's not written like there's, it's not, there's no story. He, there's a chronology of events and he reports the events and he interprets them in, in chronological order. So there's no, you can't, it's, it, it almost reads like a catalog of jiu-jitsu, not so much a history of jiu-jitsu. And it's well cataloged, it's well organized, but not in a way where the book flows very easily, right? So, and each, each volume is a thousand pages each. So we're talking between Craze and Shocky, 5,000 pages. You know, it's not, and not, that's just, that's just one of the books that we, there are others, right? So, the, the documentary was uh, a, a bridge between that world and the average practitioner. I knew that people weren't going to read. I knew that it was too heavy. So, but like, we got to get this story out. So the documentary was intended to be exactly that, uh, a bridge. And, and, and the book, the same. The book is just maybe, you know, some extra arches on that, on that bridge between the academic world and, um, and, the, and the documentary. Robert, what's, whenever you take on a project, I mean, this is a project, I believe this took you like three years from the, the decision to do it to completion. You worked on this long and hard. What surprises cropped up along the way? Um, I think it's something that we all know, but we don't always, we're not aware of it when we're happening. It's how incredibly confident we are in our ignorance. I was so ignorant as to the process of filmmaking. In my head, I can do it. It's easy, done. You know, and it's it's only when you throw yourself in the muddy waters of getting it done that you realize the mess you're into. And it's it's a very 
it, it is an art. And it, and my, I mean, and to be fair, I don't do much of the tech. In fact, I don't do any of the technical work. Well, it's all my team in Virginia. But my lack of experience put a lot of power in. I, I, I shared a lot of the power within the production because I knew that I had blind spots. I had no idea what they were. But I was fully aware that there were unknown unknowns. So I walked into this. Oh, let's give you know, let's let, let the the experts handle it. And as a result, I I think that I did a poor job as a leader in terms of keeping to schedules and ha- like there have to be consequences. If I if you're if you're building the Raiders Stadium and you promise the stadium by 2020, and you're the construction company and you deliver in 2022, well, there has to be some kind of consequence. You're going to get paid less, for example. And I, I didn't do any of that because in my head I would have been fine. So uh, that that lack of experience and perhaps even a little naive, I tend to be very naive when dealing with people, I think that were very, very harmful. Um, and that was probably the biggest lesson here is I just got to be wiser when dealing with people and contracts and just being – you got to be a little more cutthroat, I guess, is the lesson. During the actual interviews, what moments stand out when you were face-to-face with a lot of these BJJ pioneers, a lot of great pioneers who, particularly people in America, Australia, Britain, everywhere outside of Brazil, they've never heard of them. These are people whose stories haven't been told on a bigger scale. What stands out? What was very memorable about some of those interviews, being face-to-face with them and them telling you their stories? What stands out? There was, you know, I, this wasn't something I had planned. It wasn't something I was expecting. But there were two two feelings that that uh, jumped at me. One was a profound respect for the elderly. You know, um, just listening the stories of like how João Alberto Barreto, he's one of the founding fathers. He's one of Helio's first black belts. One of the founding fathers of what we call MMA. He was the UFC first referee. The very UFC one. He was the referee. He used to fight MMA every weekend. Every weekend. Let that sink in. Some of these guys will not take a fight on like a short notice on once in their life. This guy did it every week for years. So this man is a true superhero. No, he's not always remembered. He's not always credited. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that the role that they played, but their humility, um, their wisdom. I, I felt that even when a lot of times we associate wisdom with um, intellect, with academic kind of intelligence, that's, they're not necessarily the same, right? Some of these guys... Some of these grandmasters, I don't think they've ever read a book in their life, but they were incredibly wise. They were life smart. They were life wise. And just talking to them, I think I was able to, you know, see. I, I was curious to see which one I would be like when I was older, right? And you got a glimpse of what it is like to reach your late 80s. And I hope that I am in where they are. You know, they were very different, but they all had an overall feeling of, I lived a life. I made mistakes. I did some good stuff. My regrets are this, this, and that, you know, but overall life is worth living. Life is very painful, but it is worth living at the end. And now I'm ready to go today, tomorrow, in 10 years. I have a smile on my face when I leave this planet. And that was the overall lesson. It was something quite, quite beautiful. And then the one that expressed it like that, but they all had that attitude that they're ready to leave this world. Anytime. I remember like one of the last thing might have been the last question I asked Robson Gracie. And I asked him, if you can fight anyone that were alive, who would you fight? And he goes, I don't want to fight anyone. I've fought a lot. I've loved a lot. 
I live my life. I'm ready to die any, any minute now. I'm perfectly happy with my life. I got no one left to fight. I just wish everyone the best. And this is a guy who grew up fighting in the streets of Copacabana and, and Ipanema as a kid. You know, this is a guy who's, I mean, you've heard stories of how he raised Ryan, Henzo, and Half Gracie, you know, and that's, and he's just like, I'm done fighting. And even a man like him at the end of his life was at peace with, with life in the world. The other lesson that jumped at me was the, the major cultural differences between that within that operate and the importance of culture within a martial art, like visiting the coaching gyms in, in, in Japan, coaching judo gyms, which in technical terms are very similar to BJJ, but in cultural terms that they couldn't be more different. Right. And being able to see aspects of Brazilian culture in Japan and all over the world, it never realized to me that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu really is Brazil's number one cultural expert ever, possibly. I don't think Brazil's ever had a cultural expert uh, export as um, meaningful, as uh, impactful as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Wow. You know, um, me as a, I'm a student of, uh, obviously, of Jiu-Jitsu, uh, but also of uh, Brazilian culture and the language. Um, and um, I'm, as an American, you know, um, I'm constantly looking for that difference of, uh, of what, what, what are the elements of the Brazilian culture that you see? Um, so I, I appreciate, you know, you bringing this up in this topic. Um, w- would you identify for me a couple of things that you're referring to? Uh, you know, the, for, for, there's good and bad with, with any culture. I think you can find, you know, and, and because I'm half Brazilian, I, I can say this with a certain degree of comfort without sounding like a xenophobe. Um, Brazilians are not, they're very, they, they live life in the moment. And as a result, I think there might be the happiest people on this planet. Like, I, I've never heard of, uh, 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 you know, what's it called, Prozac in Brazil. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of anyone on it. I've, it's true. Like, I had never heard of the drug until I moved here. I, I'm not saying it doesn't exist there. I'm not saying that Brazilians aren't on it. I had never heard of it. Um, they they live life in the moment, man. They're very happy people. The suicide rates there are fairly low compared to a lot of countries. Like they 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 party. Like if they can do something later, they'll do it later. They're not going to do it now. But I think result, they're very happy people. And I think a lot of lingers groups of culture. It's far more relaxed to the Japanese culture. It's like it's the it's the shaka. It's the acai the fist bump, it's the street wear, the surf kind of, you know, I call it the Hakuna Matata culture. And it's kind of how these men live their life. They live their life like they're teenagers. And it's good and bad. There are good things about it, and there's bad things about it. Um, I, I'm the kind of opinion, just like just like with the U.S. and Brazil, because I've always been in between. I'm like, what's good about Brazil can I take, and what is good about the U.S. that I can take? And I reject what I don't like, and that's how I try to shape myself. And in terms of jiu-jitsu martial arts, it's exactly how I feel. I don't see a problem with showing up on time. I think that showing up on time is a good thing. I like organization. I like order. I like being – I like structure. But I like to laugh and make fun of my friends too. And if I call you a name and make fun of you, you shouldn't call the principal or call the police or be offended. Like, you know, take it easy, man. It's just life and it's fine if someone makes fun of you. And that's all Brazilians do is make fun of one another. Like they don't even, they barely talk. All they do is tease each other nonstop. The word bullying does not exist in Portuguese, just to give you an idea. The concept is so strange to them. Like, you mean like being friends with people? Like that's what they do is make fun of each other nonstop. 
And I enjoy that. I like that. I like making fun of people. People make fun of me. I laugh. I laugh at myself and not take life too seriously like that. And Brazilians have mastered the art of not taking life too seriously. I had to ask oh. because because I'm married to a Brazilian, so um, it's you know I'm always you know always seeking you know what makes us different and you know whether it's either personality or is it cultural. And uh, I definitely understand the the part about time. <laughs> you know, the time there's it's on a different clock. Like it's what clock? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, appreciate Robert, that. What, what, um, I'm sorry, no, Robert. Why do you think it's why do you think it's important for people to know history? We've got a time and age. BJJ is blossoming. It's spreading like wildfire. It's you know, every every technique is on YouTube now. Why is it important for today's generation, the 20-year-olds, the 25-year-olds, to to know about these pioneers, to know this history? What's what, what are your feelings on that? For the same reason we ought to remember 1776, for the exact same reasons. I mean, not as important in the grand scheme of life, but the same reason why we should remember why, who are the original people on this continent and the fact that we're about to celebrate another Thanksgiving and not remember who we replaced in order to be here. For the same reason, we ought to remember the heroes of World War II and the sacrifice that men paid to, so we were not under Nazi rule, you know, particularly Russians. They never got the credit for it, but they deserve it. They played the largest role in winning World War II, was played by the Soviet Union. They got erased from history because of Hollywood, but it's a fact. It's not a controversial one. It's just unknown. Um, for, reasons, for all the reasons, that's why we should honor the American militias in 1776. We have to remember these things because there's a reason why in school they hammer nationalism in the curriculum. They hammer the founding fathers. They hammer George Washington, Alexander Hamilton. There's a reason why they do these things. Thomas Jefferson, you keep hearing their names over and over. These things give you identity. And identity is important for the present and it's important for the future. This is why carving your identity is such an important thing. If you lost your memory today, Frank, and you didn't remember a thing about your childhood, you didn't remember jujitsu, you didn't remember me giving you a black belt and there's no evidence of it, right? So now you don't remember it either. There are no pictures. So who ha- it, doesn't, it didn't happen, right? That's, that's, that's how... That's the importance of, of memory is giving you a sense of identity. Because if you forget who you are, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're moving. You have no sense of future or direction. There's no, I mean, where am I? And this is, and this is something I feel Brazilian people really suffer of. There's um, a Brazilian anthropologist. is a personal hero of mine. His name is uh, Darcy Ribeiro. And he writes a book called The Brazilian People. Everyone should read it. Every Brazilian, I, I, I joke about it. If, you have, if you're a Brazilian and you've never read Daisuke Ribeiro, you should have your passport revoked and you can never call yourself a Brazilian because that right there should be the Bible. Every Brazilian should read that book. And every American, no, I know you're interested in Brazil. Next book you read should be The Brazilian People by Daisuke Ribeiro. And the reason I love that book is because it talks about the Brazil's lack of identity. It talks about the colonization process in Brazil all the way to modern times and how Brazilians never really carved an identity in a way that Americans did. If you ask um, any, any American, any American, name me three national heroes. They can do it in less than three seconds. 
Now, ask any Brazilian, give me one national hero. One. One. I know you're going to say Pele. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put Pele the national hero. I think it was a horrible human being, if you ask me. But, you know, anyway, it's a different story. But I, it, it's hard for Brazilians to find a national hero that's not a soccer player or any other athlete. We don't have a George Washington. There's no, there are no George Washingtons in Brazil, the equivalent. And this created an identity crisis. So Brazilians, they're Brazilian, they're Portuguese, they're native, they're African, but they really admire Americans. They want to be like Americans, but they don't know how to. And it's, and it's a country that has more natural resources than Russia, and yet it has more natural resources. I mean, one of the richest countries in the world in terms of na uh, natural resources, and yet it remains in the shadow of its northern brother. It's a country that has never managed, forgive the colloquial language, but to get their shit together. Robert, um, you're, you know, you're a pioneer, right? You're a pioneer after those, after those early pioneers. You're a pioneer relative to especially American jiu-jitsu. You're half American. Your dad is, is, uh, is American. Your mom is Portuguese. How what do you see the, ev the evolution of Brazil? I mean, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and submission grappling. What do you see? Um, what do you see happening in that evolution? What do you like about that evolution? What, if anything, concerns you about the evolution? The obsession that we have um, making money the most important thing on everything we do in life. And I think money is important. It has a place in the world. There's no doubt about it. But the, 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 the attempt at making jiu-jitsu a professional sport has not what's best for the longevity of the sport. It doesn't have what's best for people. It doesn't have what's best for practitioners and students and the culture. It has how can we make most money from the sport. And that's sort of the guy north for the sport right now. And when you have that sort of mindset, you aren't always doing what's best for the sport or people, right? And I understand that athletes got to make money, but this this crazy race that you get to has become who can get richer faster, I think it's very detrimental to the sport. And I think that, I mean, I'm not so convinced that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu will exist as an art 100 years from now because of it, if it doesn't change. Judo, I think Judo is going to be around for another 100 years. They've been around for 100 40, more or less, you know, I think they're going to be around for another 100, no problem. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'm not so sure, right? And there, there's, there, there are reasons for this, right? That, that the culture, the identity, it is, it guides the future of any individual. It guides the future of a group. It guides the future of a sport. When we don't have any of these things in place and the North is sort of like what's best for me, 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 then, I mean, what kind of future do you think you're building? You're one of the most competitive. What? Go ahead, Noah. I, I, you know, I, I'm I'm a lowly blue belt under Henzo, but uh, I, I, you know, I I gotta throw my hand and go. Well, I, I respect that, but what? Where does um, where does the Gracie family fall in in the lineage, um, and where the where the sport will be in a hundred years? I'm sure there's going to be Gracies around, but um, I, I like I like the I like the uh, the contrast thought or the uh, that thought of how is uh, the pursuit of profits uh, tainting or affecting the lineage or the longevity of jujitsu. Um, I like I like 
I I like that. Uh, that's that's something that I wouldn't expect to hear. So, um, you know, as a Gracie student, um, you know, that's uh, that actually you know stands the hairs back on on my back a little bit um, to hear that. But I I uh, um, I, I think the Gracie is going to be around um, promoting the sport. Um, now. Um, what's your thoughts on, you know, with where that lineage, its role in the future um, and keeping it uh, in another hundred years? Um, I, I don't think I don't think the Gracie family will be playing a prominent role in, in the history of in the future of jiu-jitsu. I think it's going to get less and less over time. I think they're going to be remembered as, you know, a fundamental group of people. Not all of them. Some of them did more harm than good. But some of them are very, very important. Some of them did more harm than good, if you ask me. But so let's not generalize. But I think that they played a key role in the development of what we now call religion outside of the judo matrix. But 50 years from now, I think they're going to be history. There's not going to be a lot of jiu-jitsu. I mean, normal, not more or less. It's not going to be. And family is not united. As a, you know, there's a moment there. I was just talking to Jean-Jacques Machado yesterday. You know, we, we announced him, you know, we're going to announce him today as the official narrator for our documentary. So I spent the oh. day with him. Yeah. And uh, and he was talking about, like, how he used to be. And he's sort of part of the family. He's like, man, there were 40 kids in this ranch, and we would line up the lunch. And as soon as we were done eating lunch, we would go play, and we'd get in trouble, and we'd fight, and we you know, do jujitsu, And when there was time to eat again, 40 kids would line up. They were very, very united. And I think mm. that... So much division now that I just don't see that happening. I, I think it's it's gonna, you know, they're not going to be a cohesive group. I mean, at, at this point, I don't think they are. There are pockets, but the tendency is for them to have less and less influence in jujitsu. I feel like, and the jujitsu is going to fall largely in the hands of the English speaking world because that's where the money is. Um, you see this through flow grappling. You see this through the the the, 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 the make the jujitsu becoming jujitsu becoming more and more professional. You see this in the fact that, you know, there's far more, uh, there's a much bigger marketing effort made by English-speaking peoples. There's a much bigger um, push for people, uh, English-speaking people to, you know, become um, prominent in the sport. Like you get, you know, Brazilian doesn't speak English and he can win five, six world titles. No one pays attention. You get a guy who's American or Australian, he wins world, one world title. It's like, whoa, you know. He gets 10 times more notoriety. It's not even close to being proportionate. I'll give you an example. ADCC. ADCC has two trials in North America and one in Brazil. Now, given the history of the fact that Brazilians win 70% of the medals in ADCC, and they have for the past 20 years, you would think it would be the other way around. Two trials in Brazil, one in North America. Not the case. Right? This is one example of many. If you pay close attention... For any Brazilian to get any notoriety in the English-speaking world, I mean, you have to be—you have to be absolutely incredible, like phenomenal. Average is not—you can't just be one-time world champion. You have to win six, seven, eight titles. If you're an English-speaking person, and I've been privileged because of this, and I've been—I have—I have benefited from this. I was invited to ADCC both times because I have an American passport, not because—I mean, I had some jiu-jitsu titles, but there were people in Brazil with more titles than me that weren't invited. I was invited mm. because so there's that element into the history of jiu-jitsu. It's, it's changing because, you know, the truth of the matter is Brazilians have always been in the leadership of the sport. What we're, what I'm, what I'm seeing happening is not changing. 
and it's changing for a variety of reasons, but we don't have to get into it. But I, I think that, and that's what's, what the part that worries me is that somewhere along the way, because the American mind is so business oriented, it's so business oriented that we're going to lose even more of what was, there wasn't even a lot of Japan and Brazil. We're going to lose whatever is left of it. And it's going to be all about the money, all about the business. And that's not a good future for the sport, I don't think. I think that's probably why the history, I'm sorry to speak over. I, I think that's probably key reason why history, documenting history, just like um, I think I know um, Hal Teague was in an, on an effort to document uh, red belts in um, in heel. Um, I think knowing your history is so key. Um, you know, in, in the pandemic this year, I sat down and looked at my own genealogy and realized that I'm descended from well, George Washington, uh, you know, the half brother, um, uh, and have family members in the Revolutionary War plots at Arlington. Knowing your history is key. And, you know, there, I think there's, there has to be a movement within the sport to know its history and to respect it. I picked yeah. up Hyla Gracie's book on, um, that she wrote, um, first the Portuguese and then the English language version. Um, but I haven't worked out. I, it's just, I haven't had that kind of downtime to work my way through it. Uh, but you've definitely gotten me interested in digging in to, uh, to your work um, and, and knowing the history of the sport for this very reason of carrying the flag forward, at least yeah. for as long as I'm around. Yeah, I, I'm I want to shift gears, Robert, I want to shift gears away from the history because I don't want to – people out there, we want to plug it. You know, I want people to see the book, see the documentary. My ADD mind likes others, a lot of other stuff. Robert is definitely a historian-minded person. Uh, but I want to shift it into um, some, of the other, some of the other arenas while we have you. And I want to ask you, you're a very driven athlete. You're ultra-competitive. I relate to that. I identify with that. What was the thrill for you, Robert, in the mats when you were training for tournaments, when you were training for fights? What's the thrill? What did you love most about being on the mats? I think maybe it's, I don't know, I, I, I can't give you a good reason what, you know, what drives a person. I think everyone's got different reasons why they're driven. But, yes, I was very competitive on the mats, and I, I think that was always my best asset. It wasn't athletic ability or technique. It was very, very competitive. But um, I don't know, man. Like I enjoyed – maybe it's selfish, maybe it's vain, but I enjoyed being the best guy on the mats. It bothered me profoundly if I were on the mats with anywhere and I couldn't make that one person tap, whoever that was. Like wherever I was, I just had to be the guy who was going to make everyone tap. And – that really motivated me. And walking out of that room, knowing that I tapped everyone in the room, gave me pleasure. And like I said, maybe it's vain. Maybe it's not very noble. It's not very – but that was the – it was a big part of the motivation. I won't say it's the only reason, but I enjoyed just trying to, you know I, – I, if I, someone beat me in practice, I'd lose my shit. Like I just hated getting tapped in practice, you know. And as, as I moved up, I got – I was doing don't, better don't, and better. Don't you think that, all, that, that, that almost all of the best – Jiu-jitsu practitioners and fighters have that though. There's a, even whether they show it or they don't, there's a space in them that if they're getting beaten, if they're getting showed up, there's a space in them that wants to strongly respond and correct that. I know mean, you think that they all have that fight in them where it's like, 
Now, it, it's not going to go down like this. I win. I'm going to win. I'm going to dominate. Yeah. Oh, have you seen one that doesn't have that? Have you seen one that doesn't have that ultra competitiveness, that fire, that problem with being beat? Have you met a, a great one that doesn't have it? Does anybody see yeah. it now? Yeah, it's but it's not. I don't think it's binary, Frank. I don't. I don't think it is. You have it or you don't. I think it's a spectrum. I think that some people just they go in volumes. You know, like some people just are more than others. For example, like I'm not going to mention names, but there are guys I used to train with every day. They were ve- they're very competitive, but deep down they knew that I was more than them, and they would almost like shrink when it was time to train because they knew that I wasn't going to break. They were going to break before I did, and they. So even though they were very competitive with other people and it was time to train with me, they were kind of like, all right, I already know what's going to happen, you know, because it had been established in, pre- in previous roles. Like we would roll and sometimes it will be a war for six months until eventually there's a certain dynamic that's established. And whereas before he would try to get out of the submission, now he doesn't even try because he knows that he's just going to get hurt or more tired. So there's a sort of like acceptance of, you know, who's going to win that round. Right. And that's something that's it's like almost like a language. It's not spoken, but there's a language going on there. Like it's, and it's very, very live on the mass of the competitiveness. It's a healthy competitiveness, but it's very, very present. How do you how have you and, and what advice would you give for younger athletes as to molding and shaping, taming their egos? How do you go about that with somebody? What's the balance point there? So I think of the ego, think of it as like a big explosion, right? Like think of it as like you have gunpowder. So if you have a keg of, of gunpowder and you light a, 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 throw a match in there, it's just going to blow in all directions and you're probably not going to get a lot done, right? But if you can turn that into a bullet, you can actually hit the target, right? So I think of like ego, ego is not a bad thing. Ego, if you channel it and you turn it into a bullet, it hits the mark. You just got to channel that. Like, I'll give you an example. Like people, people, a lot of times when they lose or things don't go their way, and this I see this over and over and over in life and jujitsu everywhere. They're always blaming the world. It's my coach. It's the rules. It's the weather. It's my girlfriend. It's I'm sick. There's always a reason why they don't win, right? And then that's the that's I call it the external ego. The ego that you externalize it, right? It's the world. That's why I didn't win. So if you beat me, I get mad at you. And there's nothing wrong with being mad, but you should be mad at yourself. You're the one who lost. But if you take that, it's like it's being mad is gunpowder. What are you going to do with it? Is it going to be a random explosion in all directions, or is it going to be a bullet that hits the target? The key is to try to turn that gunpowder into a bullet, right? So it actually has purpose. Um, but like I've, I've always, I've always had a massive ego on the mats. But I don't ever recall getting mad at my training partner who beat me. I don't think that's ever happened. Like I would go home, like when I was a kid, I'd cry. I'd go home and I'd be crying and fucking punch the wall and shit. Like it sounds, it's embarrassing to even say that, but that was sort of like my my approach to losing. You know, I just I could not stand the fact that there's someone on the mats that was better than me. Yeah. Um, what? Um when it comes to adversity, what what's the most adversity you faced in your life, and how did you work your way through it? You see, me personal life or jujitsu, professional career, what, what, whatever comes to mind, whatever comes. You, you, Robert Drysdale, the person, <laughs> you know, and, and the athlete, both. 
This is Most this is about doing the therapy session very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, we I think all, we all have an answer to that question. It's supposed to be it's supposed to be a very challenging, but it illuminates. It illuminates. It's a teachable, coachable thing. Most adversity you face, and how to, how are you working through it? If you haven't all, all the way worked through it, how are you working through it? I, I give you a few. I, I've always I have a hard time dealing with people. I am very, you know, I can be very stubborn. When I feel like I'm right, I'm the first one to apologize when I'm wrong. I have zero egos. I apologize to people all the time. But if I'm right, I don't care who's on the other side. I, it, there's no, I, and I can be very, very pig headed like that. And it makes it difficult to deal with people. Um, you know, I can be somewhat of a robot sometimes, not very emotional. I, I discount people's emotions. All the people. Oh, we have to validate my emotions. Like, if you're wrong, I don't give a fuck what your emotions are. Like, you're wrong. Like, it doesn't matter how you feel about the fact. It's, you know, but people, they feel like I should validate their emotions. And I, I refuse to. If you're wrong, I, don't, I mean, you might feel that you're entitled to a Ferrari. Like, I'm sorry. You're not. That's your feeling. That's great. You feel that way. But I don't have to validate that. You didn't earn a Ferrari. You know, but that's, and I, and I'm very much like that every second of my life. And, you know, so it makes it difficult to deal with, you know, people who are entitled in general. Um, but, you know, on a more recent, man, is retirement has been very difficult for me is knowing that I have students that could beat me now, um, you know, not by a lot, but they can beat me. And that's hard because, you know, you, you're losing your superpowers and, when you lose your superpowers because you're so attached to that identity, you it's a loss of identity at the same time. It is a lot. There's no way around it. It's not a matter of if. There are things that are in your control and there are things that are not in your control. And aging is not something that's in your control. Plus, because of the way I trained, I think I aged a lot faster than I than most people. Because when I trained, every round was the final of the world championship. I never had an easy – every round was like the final of the world championship. And as a result, even though I'm 39, most people, oh, you're not that old. I'm like, I don't think you understand. If, like, if a doctor looked at an x-ray of my body and he had to guess my age, he'd probably say 60. You know, I think I've aged a lot faster than I should have because of that. But that's been difficult. And, you know, kind of finding the balance between, you know, still being on the mats, but for different reasons because I can't be that guy anymore. So now I just have to be on just a – be in shape like what the fuck man like i don't want to be on the mats to be in shape that's bullshit you know i for what because people think i should oh that's stupid too like, i should I, I why why am i on the mats like what am i doing there like if i'm not winning like what am i doing here? so it creates like yeah it makes you ask like what because i can say all day jujitsu is an end in itself but i don't feel like i live that like i think i say that and i try to do that but i think deep down i still miss you know, being able to win every second of every run. And then if I do that, let's say I do push, the next day I'm going to be like, you know, in severe pain. So it's a combination. I can be in shape and in a lot of pain or out of shape and no pain. And because I'm not competing, like before, the, there was a, I could justify being in pain because there was an objective, right? I don't have that objective anymore. So it's like, why am I in pain all the time? For what? Right, so there's no the, the solution is to slow down. There's no other way around this. But that's do not. You a, have, do you have a lot more respect for me at age 38 and 40 in the room with studs training? Do you? Do you oh yeah. I used to say I used to say that to you. I say, bro, 
one day you're gonna you're gonna realize like because you sometimes oh, you think Frank's got more in him. Frank's got to have a little more in him. And I, no. like, as a, everything I got, man. As, as a coach, my job is to do that, right? But I, it, it's it, when, when a 25 year old hears this, he doesn't hear you. It's because he looks at your body and he goes, "Well, you got two arms, you got two legs, you know, your face has been cut, you're not bleeding." You're standing, you're talking, you're walking. You know, clearly, you're just as healthy as me. That's that's their thought. That's how I used to think, right? It's like you don't understand. Like the joints don't move as quickly, and it hurts when they move, and their reflexes aren't. There's nothing you can do about it, you know. So that was that's been. Uh, I have a lot of respect for people in their 50s, 60s, or still on the mats. I'm like, holy shit, man! That is way harder than winning a world title, man. Like winning a world title in hindsight was easy in terms of discipline. That was easy. Being in the gym twice a day, that was easy. I was healthy. Where's the discipline? I enjoyed every second of it. I was healthy. There's no discipline at all. But like being on the mats when you're hurt and you're nuts, it's way harder. What do you, in terms of, because I, you know, I hear people say it's popular to say, I have no regrets. I have no regrets. I have, you know, live life with no regrets. The reality is, I think we all have regrets or we all, yeah. all wish we had a do over, right? We're like, I wish I could do that over what when you think about life on the mats and off the mats if you could have a few do-overs what stands out say, I, w- I wish i had a do-over on that one i would have not opened a school i would have focused on my career i would have not taught seminars i would have not taught jiu-jitsu i would have just buckled up financially and invested 100 percent in my mma career like i did with my jiu-jitsu career that's I, I, I don't like to use the word regret because it makes when you say regret to me, what I hear is you're not content with where you are in life. Right? And life brought me here because of the good and the bad. So I'm perfectly I am content, I'm happy in the sense where I feel like I I'm proud of who I am, right? I'm there I don't have any identity issues in that sense. Like I'm not I'm not happy with the person I am. My mistakes made me the person I am. So no issues there, but there is a part of me that's like, hey, man, it would have been nice to have that triple crown, you know, like IBJJF, ADCC, and a UFC belt. And I could have. I really think I could have won a UFC belt. But uh, that's the only thing that, you know, I feel that um, – I, like I said, I, I'm, I don't want to use the word rewrite. I'm not going to use okay. that word. But I, I think had I not opened a school and just invested 100% in myself, I think I would have done a lot more in MMA. While we're on that subject then, because let's talk about black belts, like giving someone a black belt. What, in your mind, because you have you have the spectrum, as we talked about earlier, you have the spectrum. You have the world champions, the ADC champions. You have the people that compete at the Pan Ams and the American Nationals and you know top submission grappling tournaments, people who fight. And then you have everybody else. What is the standard there? What are you looking for? Because you might have, the, again, the 70-year-old mom, the autistic kid. You have all different kinds of people, the 100-pound, you know, uh, 20-year-old woman that's training. Who, you know, who, who is worthy of a black belt? A lot of us just think it's like, oh, whoever's competing at tournaments and winning everything or whatever or on the podium. How do you adjudicate who is black belt worthy? I apply, I apply different standards to everyone. Like I think there was a standard. There was a good one. 
that it was, it was a very good standard. It was solely based off of football. And if you weren't good at jiu-jitsu, you would die a brown belt. Like, like, it was very, very Spartan, you know? Like, it was very, very, like, if you're not strong enough, you will perish. <laughs> very Darwinian, like, no fucks given, no political correctness. Oh, but I am old, or I'm injured, or I got three kids, or I drive for two hours. And, you know, if you can't beat that you can't win, you can't. That was sort of like the the mentality, but that has been lost. And, and the other thing too is, I mean, is that fair with a fifty-five-year-old mom who trains, you know, three times a week? She's been training fifteen years, and is that fair with her that we ask her to beat everyone on the mats? Like she's a fifty-five-year-old mom. One solution, one solution to create a different system. So you have two kinds of black belts. You have a competitor and a practitioner black. Belt. That's the solution. The honor of a competitive black belt is given on the podium only of a high big tournament. And that's a solution. And they have the practitioner black belt, which is anyone who's consistent and you know, as long as you're not a monster of a human being and you're consistent and you have a fundamental understanding of the curriculum, you're you're you you deserve that black belt. But I think that for you to be a black belt of the competitive type you have to like it should be one of those things where you have to place in a national level tournament or win a national level tournament or something very significant, right? That would justify you moving up the ranks. Just to draw that distinction because there really is a difference. Now you talk about different athletes that you faced. You faced Roger Gracie a number of times, and I remember you telling me the story about his grip power. You know, he's just got this. You know, he's got a phenomenally strong grip when he's on the lapel tell us about what stands out you know because again roger gracie is a is a fascinating athlete in that when you watch him he doesn't look like anything special right to the to the stand the person who knows nothing about jujitsu who's never heard the name you know hasn't heard much about you know the, even the gracie name or the gracie brand or roger gracie you watch the guy warm up doesn't look like anything special you watch him move on the mat he moves pretty slow and deliberate he doesn't look like anything special, but he is special. Tell us about what makes him special, Robert, what you felt, what you think makes him special, and about that grip power of his um, on the lapel. Um, you know, first of all, I, I think he confirms something that every coach and every athlete knows. Look, looks have nothing to do with athletic ability. We, we have this, I think, Hollywood movies and cartoons and graphic novels they have educated us to associate size with athletic ability. Like it was a whole, it was the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like this guy was a reference for people. He was a bodybuilder and he became a reference of athleticism for generations. The Hulk, the Hulk is super athletic, right? He says, so we associate these things. The first lesson we learn is that, you know, the way you look doesn't say a thing about how strong you are. It really doesn't. And, and, and I'll argue with this with any, and any conditioning coach will tell you the same thing. How you look says nothing about your athletic ability. You can't see red blood cells. You can't see the size of your heart. You can't see the size of your lungs. You can't see. There's a number of things going on in athletic ability. Your testosterone levels are not measured through eyesight. There's a number of things going on here that no one muscle density, like they're not factoring. They just looks. I think they're a very small piece of the equation. I think Roger speaks up because even though he's very tall, you're right. He does not look very muscular. I'm telling you, he's very strong. I, he has ripped my gi sleeve off, brand new gi, like made a hole in it by pulling. 
I, I've never in all my years of jiu-jitsu, I've never seen that, nor in competition, nor in, in the gym. It was it was the only time in my life I've seen someone grab a gi and rip a hole through it with with a grip was was with Roger. I mean, that's to me, that's that's not technique, that's just brute strength. I'm not saying he's not technical. He is a uh, an outs combination of I think that the confidence that was instilled in him being around the people he was around. He was built up to be a champion. He has a father who's very supportive in the sense where he was a very successful black boner from all accounts, stupid strong as well. Uh, he was the guy who beat everyone back in the day from what I hear. So he took a lot from his father. And he's, in, and he's surrounded by people that want him to be a champion, that tell him that he's a champion, that he's going to be a champion. And, you know, there was there's a buildup for, for him to be that guy. It's kind of like Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather was built from the bottom up, not just because he's exceptionally talented, but because he was in a very, very, uh, an environment that was very, uh, um, you know, that led to that, you know, to his record of 50 and 0, right? Like the same thing with Khabib. Khabib was brought up to be the champion that he was. I think Roger was the same. He was brought up from the beginning to be that guy. And he became that guy, man. It was, it was, a, and it worked. Like they, there, I think there was, there was an investment there that was made in him because, People saw something. Not only was, you know, they, I think there's an investment in every member of the Gracie family, but at some point they see something in some of them. And like Roger had that. And I think there was, I think that the team Gracie Baja made a huge investment in making, and his father now made this, a huge investment. This molds very well into a question. And you, I think you and I have talked about this before, which is basically predicting. If we're in a, you're running a jujitsu class and there's 60 students in there. Uh, you know, white belts and blue belts, how can you, what do you look for to tell you, well, let's say the white belts, what do you look for to tell you this one could be special? This one could be really good. What are the, what are some some signs you could look for to predict? Very hard to predict. We know that with like Felipe Pena, right? You see pictures of Felipe Pena as a white belt. It's like, there's no way that somebody's going to look at that guy in his first couple weeks or months. Like and be like, he's going to, he's going to be, this phenom, right? And no, no one's going to predict that. But what, what are you looking for? What qualities, what attributes, what intangibles for the young athlete, for the white belt, do you look for and say, aha, I'm going to pay attention to this one because this one could be really good. This one could be special. I, I can kind of tell, man. Like I, you know, if they're going to stick to it, it's, it's a harder thing. But you can see who the talented ones are right away. I can see that like almost like day one, I can tell the ones that are athletic, the ones that are not, the ones that are competitive with the ones that are not. And that it's not necessarily an indicator if they're going to stay with it or not. The indicator if they're going to stay with it or not, that takes a little bit hard. That takes longer to read. As far as their talent and potential, I can see that day one. I mean, I, and I'm never wrong. Like, I can see this guy could be – I mean, he's very, very talented. Like, there's, there, I have students in the gym. They walk through the door. This whole thing of there's no such talent, talent is a myth. That is a load of nonsense. Ta talent is real. It is 100% real. It's, you know, it's like saying that short people can play in the NBA and tall people can be good gymnasts. I'm like, you know, right. Like, try to find me a tall gymnast that's successful. It just don't exist. Like, what you are plays a role in how well you're going to do things. It's just not to me. It's so fundamental. It blows my mind that people believe otherwise.
It's shocking. Are, you, you can be whatever you want to be. This this mythology that's wrecking people's lives. You can be. You can do whatever you want. It's a total mythology, <laughs> and it gets people in trouble. Big big trouble. Yeah, yeah. it's um, a. No, big, let's, 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 go ahead, bro. Go ahead, Rob. No, no, that, that was that was pretty much it. And um, yeah, I yeah. Go ahead. So let's talk. Let's talk about Max. You had that moment, and 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 by the way, we here on Every Man, we have a lot of respect for Max. We have a lot of respect for you. So this is not about questioning max because that could be anybody we're, we're at max could be the every man the every woman anybody who's super talented could be in a high pressure situation and things happen and and somebody who's the bravest the best whatever just has an off day but you went through that that situation where you had a fighter max who's just you know just so talented in the gym he's a young fighter he's five and six and zero gets an opportunity in the ufc he goes and fights i mean he's He's he looking like the next great thing. He has an off day in there. And and then you get some criticism for being the guy in 2020 who's trying to push his athlete and tell and trying to talk him into, hey, let's go, you know, you know, you you can you can do this. And and so there's some criticism of you, but let's let's just talk about today. That was a learnable, teachable moment for you. What did you pull from that experience, Rob? What did you learn from that experience? Uh, going through that. I learned that the world has become very, very, people become, I mean, it's been a theme, not just with fighting, but everything. Politics, history, jujitsu, MMA. People are confusing information with formation. That's how I like to put it. Like everyone's an expert, everyone's an expert now. Everyone knows what they're talking about. Everyone's so opinionated. And my take on it is if you're not a physicist, you shouldn't open your mouth about quantum physics. you got to shut the F up. Unless you're repeating an expert, shut the F up. Repeat an expert, different story. You're quoting from someone else. It's a different story. Your opinions on physics and quantum physics are not relevant because you are not equipped to make these calls. I think MMA fans are some of the most opinionated people in the, on this planet. Journalists are way too opinionated. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the place, man. Like you go on your social media, it's just full of people, full of opinions, and they don't know what I'm talking about. I made a post today on my Instagram. To me, it's, it's funny to me because people are like, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. To me, it's so obvious. But it's like, would you learn jujitsu on YouTube or would you prefer to learn it from a black belt? I think everyone's yeah, black belt, of course. So why is it that when it comes to your politics, you go on YouTube and Facebook, but you don't read academic work? And everyone's like, well, yeah, because, you know, it's no, 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 no. There is such thing as a hierarchy of expertise. And whether you like it or not, it's, it's. I mean, you, you don't have to like it. It just is. There is a hierarchy. Some people know more jujitsu than others. Some people know more basketball than others. Some people know history better than others. And some people don't know MMA and they should just shut up. You can watch it. You can appreciate the athletic ability. You can appreciate the technique, but you should not make comments on things you don't understand. As a coach, if I was, if the only thing I regret that day is my choice of words. I should have used better words to convince Max to get back in. That's the only thing I would have changed. If anything, I should have pushed him harder. And these people saying that I was out of line, 100% of the time, they've never trained before. So I disregard their opinion entirely. And to me, it's almost like standard. Like I knew the coaches and the fighters would side with me. So I was not surprised that that was the case. It's just that they're the minority. 
But that's the other thing. The democratization of information has confused people. People think that the majority of people believe something must be true. The majority of people should elect their leaders. That's a great concept. The majority of people aren't necessarily right. The earth is not flat because 500 years ago, many people thought so, or most people thought so. Okay? It's, it's, it's just this confusion. Like if it, Democracy is, is everything all the time. It's like, no, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes what people believe is irrelevant. They're wrong. End of story. Like if the majority of the country believes that global warming is a hoax, that doesn't make it a hoax. It's what you believe. The experts are saying this. End of discussion. This is not a debate. And, and this is with everything. People are just so opinionated. It's, it's dangerous. Robert, what, what did Max say to you afterwards? Because that's what, that's what got lost in this. What got lost in this is everybody heard the criticisms, what this pundit said, what these fans said, you know, people criticizing Max very harshly, people who've never made the walk, who've never put it on the line, who've never put their body on the line, who've never, who've never went out on the ledge that he has. But what's lost in this is, what did Max say to you in the in the in the hours afterward, or in the days or weeks afterward? What did, what did he say to you? I mean, we lost communication after a minute. The first week or so, we were communicating a lot, but uh, I think you know, I, I truly believe he's one of the most talented people I've ever trained, if not the most talented. But he um, he's very hard on himself, and he's so he's one of those guys. He's so good. He's so used to winning that when things don't go exactly how he wants them to go, he doesn't know how to deal with it. That's why I tell parents, as parents think I'm crazy, but I'm like, kids should lose, man. Like, you got to get used to losing. It's fine if they lose. It's, it's, and I think Max, even though I know he's lost matches before, of course, but he doesn't deal well with them, is my point. But I remember there's one thing in the locker room that he said. He kept saying, like, I'm never going to be the best. I'm never going to be the best. And that just stuck. Because that kind of resonates with me, too. And it's a lot. It's a huge weight to carry walking around trying to be the best and that in mind and i will constantly like angry at myself because i'm not the best there's always someone out there better than you and it's a huge weight to carry and it's almost like i mean it's good and bad i mean it's it's got its up, upsides but like who wants to live like that with that sort of pressure and i think that that's the one thing he said he kept like ringing my head he was he was obviously very upset himself and he just kept saying i'm never going to be the best and i think a lot of athletes live with that sort of pressure and I think it's good to drive you to have that sort of pressure, but you have to know when to forgive yourself. I think learning how to forgive yourself is is important as an athlete because you don't want that to end your career or sink you. Like you want it to be like, okay, I made mistakes, let's fix them. Versus, oh, I'm never going to be the best. I'm not even going to try. You know, like do that's. You think, that, do you think he'll ever fight again, Rob? Do you think Max will fight again? I have no idea. I no idea. I hope he does, but I. I think it might take him a while to, you know, even get back to training. It's it's up to him. Like, look, I I I I I enjoyed my time training him. I I think highly of him. I don't have a bad word to say about him. It, but it's ultimately his decision. Yeah. In terms of, by the way, I want to ask you this. So, in terms of the the fighting out there, the jiu-jitsu and the MMA athletes, who are some of the athletes? who you really enjoy watching, who you have a lot of respect for? I really like, um, I like Lucas Lepre. I like Augusto Tanquinho. I like, I thought that guy Lachlan Giles did really well at um, ADCC. Like he's, 
I thought I, I like what he was doing was was unorthodox and unexpected, and I think I I appreciate that thinking outside the box, right? Um, who else? A lot of good guys out there, man. Like, there's so many. It's it's hard because you, if I give you 20 names, I'm gonna be unfair with like 200 people. You know, I, in MMA, I love Khabib. Khabib is an easy because I I I admire him in the ring, in the cage, and outside of it as well. Even like I don't agree with some of the things he says, I still admire him for speaking his mind. I admire him for standing up to his friends. I remember when Dana was about to fire Zubaira, you know. Khabib went, if you fire Zubair, you're going to have to fire me too. And I think that Dana kind of backed down from that a little bit because he knew that Khabib was serious. Like he's not bluffing. He's not, it's, not a, it's not a political PR stunt. Like he means it. He will stand by his friends. It doesn't matter how much money he's going to lose in the process. And I really – that was his – to me, out of everything Khabib has done, that was the one thing I admire the most. You know, even though I tend not to try to – you know, I, I separate a fighter's – in the cage from him outside the cage, right? But Khabib is one of those guys I admire inside and outside the cage. Yeah, what do you, um, what do you, gosh, I just lost my train of thought because I was, I was listening to you there. Um, well, I well, guess tell why, us what you're reading. Well, go ahead, go ahead, Noah. No, I was, I was going to say, you know, if I can interject, um, by the way, Robert, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show today and um, sharing with you your thoughts about uh, Max and um, dealing with, um, you know, that inner voice of um, uh, of not being the best, you know, the imposter syndrome, um, which affects, I think, to some degree, affects all of us. Yeah. Uh, and um, I want to, I want to, um, if I can, um, transform your uh, that thought uh, real quick um, just for what I call and what this podcast is about is the everyman uh, who's on the mat you know the practitioners and every, um, and every yeah I mean that's a that's a generic term um, yeah. I'm 48 years old 48 years young and um, there's a lot of guys like me and you know, with your experiences what would you give advice to you know, uh, you know your blue belt, your blue belt enforcers on the mat. What would what would be your piece of advice that you would want um, as a takeaway from this conversation today, uh, as far as training? Um, because I I would appreciate that. You know, and, and I'm thinking what would I appreciate to hear from from a, a Robert Drysdale? You know, you seeing me on the mat struggling. You know, working my way through it. Um, I mean, I, a lot of things you could say, I guess, to a beginner, but I think one of the most helpful ones would be learn how to enjoy the struggle. Like, I think that's a very important thing. You have to learn how to enjoy it because if it's painful, you're going to stop eventually. If getting beat and being competitive and struggling all the time is something you hate, first of all, it's something you should change. My take on it is you should push through it no matter what, right? But, um, you, I, I think if you learn how to enjoy it, it's uh, things that become easier and more fun too. Like I enjoyed going to war. Like whenever I had a round with like someone like Andre Galvan or Damian Mayer, we we're going to go to war. I'm like, all right, it's going to be a war. But I would get excited instead of like, oh man, 
It, did, it, it stressed me out in a healthy way. It was like a healthy kind of anxiety. I would be driving to the gym, like driving to Sao Paulo, and I'd be having like strategies in my head because I knew I was going to go to war in like 30 minutes. I'm like in my head, I'm like, all right, what well, this is this what I'm going to do today? It's like almost like a tournament. <laughs> and I enjoyed that a lot. Like I enjoyed, even though like I put so much pressure on myself to win in competition, that in competition I could never, for some reason, I could never carry that over. I just hated the competition anxiety. But like I enjoyed the training anxiety because I felt that, I wouldn't be so hard on myself if I lost to the gym. I was very hard on myself when I lost in the tournament. Mm-hmm. In the Marine Corps, we In terms of you, t- tell us really quick, two, two things. One, I want you to tell us about how long your drive was in Brazil in the early stages when it wasn't easy to find an academy. I want you to tell us about the sacrifice of how long those drives were. And then secondly, I want you to tell us about your – your proudest achievements in the sport, and they may or may not be what we think they are. What are you most proud of in terms of your competitive years, your legacy? What makes you the proudest? What are your proudest memories? The first thing, tell us about that long drive in the early going to get to and from practice was not easy for you. Well, I can tell you about many long drives. I never had it easy when it came to training. Like sometimes like some of my students will complain about driving 25 minutes each way. I'm like, I just shake my head. I'm like, I never had that. <laughs> the closest I've ever had. Okay, I'll, I'll do it from the beginning. When I first started training, I used to train my gym called Cuatro Tempos. I would ride my bike for about 50 minutes each way to go train on a bike. 50 minutes each way, right? When I moved to Las Vegas, I used to live on North Lamb and Lake Mead. So if you're familiar with Las Vegas, you know where that is. North Lamb and Lake Mead. And I used to train Flamingo and Decatur. So I would take a bus from North Lamb which turns into Desert Inn, all the way to, I believe it's Viking. Uh, I would, no, and then I would walk from there to Eastern, and then Eastern catch a bus to Flamingo, and Flamingo catch a bus to Decatur. It took me almost three hours to get to the gym. I did this every day. So it took me about five to six hours a day in a bus to get to one training session here in Las Vegas. After that, I moved back to Brazil, and I used to drive 45 minutes each way. That's one That was easy, 45 minutes each way. And when I started training in Sao Paulo, I would drive about an hour and a half to two hours each way. The easiest I've ever had was when I lived with Steve Da Silva, and I lived with him for about a year, and we would drive to the gym together. He would just drive me to the gym. That only happened for about a year of my life. That's the only time I had it easy. Every other time, I had to drive for hours. <laughs> And, and as far as the proudest achievements, because it's probably not what we think, when you look at the things so far that you've been able to do around the sport, what are you the most proud of? What What's the most memorable? What's the most lasting? I, I'm assuming it's probably not the ADCC medal and choking out Marcelo, but you being ultra competitive, maybe it is. <laughs> No, I, I, that that gives me pleasure, man. Like it does give me a sense of satisfaction to remember that and go, I did that. No one can take that away from me. Like I won an IBJJF world title. I've won an ADCC world title. I've fought in May, you know, successfully. I've coached. I, I, I like these things are all important. I've ran, you know, I have a gym. I run it successfully. A team. I run it successfully. So these things, I they make me happy. But I think that the biggest achievement is how much jujitsu shaped me. Like I think that when I was a kid, as a teenager, uh, I had I had an urge to prove myself. Like I wanted to prove myself. I had no idea how. 
So as a result, I was somewhat, you know, not no no real direction, you know, but I wanted to prove myself. But I think jujitsu gave me a means to prove myself to myself in the way where I'm I'm proud of who I am, you know. So I think my biggest achievement is just finding jujitsu and falling in love with it and sticking to it and everything else good that has happened in my life has come from that. So I think that was the most important thing is just finding my passion when I was really young. Do you think you'll be training and coaching in 15, 20 years? Do you think Robert Drysdale is still running an academy, coaching jujitsu fighters, MMA fighters, and on the mats training? Do you think that you're doing that in 15, 20 years? Maybe. I don't, I don't know for sure. I think there's, there's other, there are other things that I want to do that I, that I'm interested in. Um, coaching is a very, very, it's a, it's a give kind of relationship. You give more than you get. And the student always goes like, yeah, I, I pay you whatever, but like, it's not, there's, there's more to this equation than just me paying rent and you paying me a membership in terms of relationship. I, it's, it's like a father and a son. A parent will always give his kids more than his kids give his parents. Children are like, you know, students and children are like, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but they're kind of like little parasites. They take a lot more than they get. And I love my kids. Don't, I, I don't see this in a joking way. Please don't, anyone don't take me seriously. I'm a great dad. I love my kids. When I call them parasites, I'm joking. I feel like I have to say this in the age of political correctness because there's some asshole out there that is listening to this, he's going to use that as a headline. Robert Dreisel calls his children parasites. Like, that's the age we're living in, right? The age of stupidity. This is the age of, you know, I think Thomas Pinnell wrote that book, The Age of Reason. Like, this is the age of stupidity. That's what we're living in right now. I have to say these things. But, um, you know, and, and that it kind of wears on you. Like, I love teaching. I love what you do for people. But it does wear on you. Um, you know, emotionally, you know, mentally. So I don't know, man. I don't know if I, I, I like to teach, but I, I'm making some changes. I've made some adjustments. And they've, they've been working so far. So 15 years from now, that's hard to say. I, I never plan that far ahead, man. I, I, I plan 15 minutes ahead. That's as far as I plan. <laughs> that, that's the Brazilian half of you. That's the Brazilian half. Uh, Noah, do you have anything to add? Do you, do you have any, any final questions here as we come down the home stretch? Um, uh, just to bring it back to home, um, you know, uh, your mother's Brazilian. Um, what's your favorite dish that your mom would make? Oh, man, my mom makes uh, feijão tropeiro, which is very good. I love that dish. Tropeiro. Uh, tropeiro. Feijão tropeiro. Her pão de queijo is very good. She makes this one dish. I'm not even sure if it's Brazilian or not, but it's like meat and potatoes, but she cooks it in a way. I, I mean, it might be an American dish. I don't even know. But like, it's my favorite dish in the whole world and no one makes it as well as she does. Um, yeah, I think feijão torpedo might be my favorite. Yeah, I got to look that up. That's very interesting. Um, you, uh, by the way, get, to both of you, how do we know when we're getting the real acai, bro? I just had an acai bowl a couple of days ago. And I always yeah. how do I know? What do I look for to know if I'm getting the real acai? Because I don't know what I don't know. Fat content. I want to know. Huh? Real acai, real acai is like avocado. There's got tons of like the healthy fats. If you're eating acai and your label says zero percent fat, there's no acai there, buddy. Hmm. The fat content is an indicator. 
BB Suko uh, um, near um, uh, uh, Corcovado. Many, many memories of BB Suko. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That just sitting down right there, that big, that big container of of, uh, of acai. Oh, oh, that's oh You're man. Killing me. I want to get on a plane right now just for BB Suko's man. I love that place. Uh, I got my passport right here. We can go. We can go. Um, you know, uh, no, was I, the try, first I thing? try not to eat it, guys. I try not to eat acai. Once, even the fake acai, this is how good it is. Even the fake acai, if I eat it, I crave it. I want to go, and they're like 10, 11, 12 bucks a pop where I am. And I'm like, damn, Frank, you can't be affording like three acai, three fake acai bowls a week. Like, damn. Next time I go to Brazil, we'll go together, and I'll take you to the real place. Okay, awesome. really quick. So the Brazilian creativity, because it, to me, it just seems like, I mean, every culture is creative at certain things, right? But it seems like the Brazilians, with their food, with their soccer, with their jujitsu, it does seem to be a very creative mind. Just, you know, Americans are bigger, faster, stronger. We organize things, we systematize them. We feel like it's our birthright to be number one. And that's sort of our secret sauce. The Brazilians, it's... The creativity IQ is really high. What do you, first of all, do you agree, Robert, with that, that the Brazilians are extremely creative at, at, at these things? And secondly, if so, what is it that drives that creativity? How do they come up? Even some of the jiu-jitsu moves, like, damn, the Brazilians are, like, just crazy uh, creative with it. I, well, I think, first of all, you know, whether you're creative or not has nothing to do with where you're born. I think everyone right. is creative, has the potential to be creative as humans, genetically speaking, yes. we are virtually yes. identical, right? Um, with, you know, in the case of Brazilians, there's something in the culture, and I, I do agree with you, what you said, but I think Brazilians are highly creative people. And I think it has to do with how unorganized they are. Because if you're unorganized, it's the truth of the matter. You, everyone's got problems. There are problems in the world. Whether you're going to prepare for those problems or not is a different story. But problems exist everywhere. I think the Brazilian way of always doing things last second plays a role here. I, I mean, there are many things that play a role here. But like, it's almost like improvising and fixing things last second kind of forces you to become very creative. And also, like, because there's a lack in terms of jiu-jitsu, I think this, you know, this is an aspect of the culture. There are no curriculums in jiu-jitsu in Brazil. No one has ever heard of a curriculum in Brazil. It is what I call the open software culture. Everyone is constantly, it will be like the equivalent of Wikipedia, except that, you know, you actually have to back it up on the maps or Wikipedia and no one has to back anything up. But it will be like one of those things where anyone can add anything. So it's constantly being updated and it's constantly changing versus you don't have a fixed canon of techniques. Like this is how you do things. In, in, in Brazil, it's like if your blue belt does a technique slightly different from the instructor, no one is gonna, you know, call him on, and no one's gonna get mad at him. It's like it's perfectly fine. Excellent stuff. Well, gentlemen, I think that are we about uh, is our time about up, Noah? Yeah, no, we're at time. Um, you know, I want to extend my um, uh, gratitude to Robert uh, Robert Drysdale, author of uh, Opening Close Guard: The Origins of Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil, the story behind the film. Um, I, I found it on Amazon. And yeah, uh, how, how do people get that book? I my Jeff What's Bezos that? has enough money. Robert Drysdale doesn't. Buy it from okay. closeguardfilm.com. <laughs> Closeguardfilm. Say, say it again because it just broke up. Say it again. You, you broke up there. How can people get the book and, and watch the documentary? Jeff Bezos has enough money. 
Buy it from my website, closeguardfilm.com. Robert Drysdale is poor. Jeff Bezos is rich. <laughs> well, it's been That's a awesome. it's, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today, um, and I look forward to uh, uh, watching the documentary and uh, getting working my way through the book. Um, it's um, I think history. Uh, if you don't know your history uh, about something, then you don't know where it's come from and the challenges that that the sport has faced. So it's important um, to get that information. And obviously, you know, your studied approach to the, the sport um, has uh, carries a lot of weight with it. So on that, I appreciate your time today, sir. Yeah, I read some of it. I read some of it, you know, some of that, that book. It, it's really well done. Robert put a lot of heart and soul. There's a lot of great, there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of good stories and figures in that book. And even I know, Robert, I know you have a soft spot for Carlson Gracie. I mean, you're like many of the pioneers that you've met and, and, and you, you know, you, 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 you're fond of all of them, but you particularly have that fondness. I heard you say for like, for Carlson Gracie is one of your little soft spot for Carlson Gracie, um, who, who you've met, who you actually got that to meet. Um, yeah. Anyway, guys, thank you so much, Robert. We're going to have you on again at some point and uh, we'll send you a link and everything promoted on your social media channels. Noah, Thank you guys so much. Happy, happy Sunday, guys. Thank and you, guys. I got good, I got good news for you, too. I'll, I'll call you off uh, off here. I got good news about some of the stuff we talked about. I got some good news. All right. So. Awesome. Anytime. All right. All right. See you guys. Hasta luego. Thank you very much. Have a good and thank you. Bye, guys. That's it for today's episode of Everyman BJJ. Thanks for listening. Look for new episodes of Everyman BJJ every week, wherever you get your podcast or at everymanbjj.com.